Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Okay, well, again, welcome everyone. We are going to be doing a Bible study today. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and throw your hand up. Uh, One of the men and women around the room would love to get a Bible into your hand. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep this one as a gift from us to you. Uh, We have been in a study in the book of Luke. So we're going to be going to the book of Luke. And uh, it's called Becoming Like Jesus. We've been kind of exploring together the life and teachings of Jesus asking kind of these questions about what are the things that he cared about, the things that made him happy or sad or angry, and and asking questions about the way he lived his life and to to figure out ways for us to reshape our story to follow his story, to become like him. And about five weeks ago or so, uh, we made a small adjustment to our teaching series. And I told everybody in that moment that we were kind of stepping over one of my favorite passages. And so today is the day we're circling back around to Luke 10. If you got, if you got to Luke, just go to chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 25. Luke 10 is probably one of the better known passages of scripture, even out in the kind of the wider culture. It's a story that has some familiarity, even if people don't know that it's necessarily from the Bible. I mean, we, we name hospitals after it. We, there's compassion organizations and global relief groups that have been named after this. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the story of the Good Samaritan. So if you're there, if you could go ahead and stand up to your feet, I'm going to read Luke 10 over us. Luke 10, starting in verse 25, goes like this. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, okay, and I want to pause here for a second. I want all of us to read this part out together. Here we go. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just as an aside, if you get nothing else from today, Remember that verse because that's the center of everything. It's the most important thing to know. He goes on. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Lord, we, we want to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We want to love our neighbor how we would want to be loved. So Lord, would you teach us today? Would you be our rabbi? Would you come, Holy Spirit, into our own hearts, our own minds, convict us, change us, challenge us? there's places that we've put up like little walls in our heart to, to protect ourselves from, from, from change, would you, would you softly, gently, or even forcibly remove some of those? We want to love you like you deserve, like you love us. And so Lord Jesus, we, we pray, we give you permission today to be our teacher and shepherd. We look to you, Jesus, because this is all about you. In your name we pray, amen. When I think about the story of the Good Samaritan, there are two stories from my own life that kind of quickly pop into my mind. Uh, two times where I have experienced the reality of the Good Samaritan um, parable. One maybe more as like the priest and the Levite, and then one more like the Samaritan himself. We might call this the tale of two stories. The first took place in the mid-90s. I was an intern at another church here in town, another large church, and I was, I was really fresh. I was green. I had very little experience. I'd come on, and I was experiencing my very first POD. That is pastor speak for pastor of the day, okay? Uh, that meant that it was my day to like respond to those calls that would come or if people showed up uh, at the front to come and answer questions or help them or, or, or do what I could, pray with them. And I remember I was super nervous because this was literally the first time I'd ever done this. And I got the call. Come on up. There's somebody at the front office that wants to meet. And so I got up there and I, w I went into the office space and I was greeted by, by a man who's probably maybe 6'3", but he was like maybe sopping wet 130 pounds. He was so skinny, just gaunt in his face and very, very tiny, clearly very, very sick. His clothes were kind of the kind of clothes you you would expect they were nice at one point in time, but had clearly been through it. When we sat down, he began sharing his story with me, and it, it sounded a lot like kind of the prodigal story mixed with a lot of Job. It was just a painful, difficult story of his life where he had moved away from his family, gone down to L.A. to kind of like live large, and in the process had basically lost everything, contracted AIDS, and he was currently dying. In the midst of his story, as he's talking, I can hear the Holy Spirit like begin like whispering to me, this man needs a hug. This man needs to feel the embrace of another human 
because he's been pushed away so much. And, and for some of you that are maybe younger in the room, back in the 90s, there was just like this rage of fear around AIDS. And it was just, it, people were so pushed away. And I could feel the Holy Spirit saying like, this guy, he needs a hug right now. So we went through the conversation and, and I'm just like the whole time going like, I don't know, Holy Spirit. Like, I'm, and not because of the AIDS thing. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a big hugger. You know, and I'm like, I don't, he's a stranger. He's older than me. This is kind of weird. So we get to that point and there's, we both stand up and it would be the appropriate moment for me to give him a hug. And I didn't. And I've relived that moment. We helped him financially and we got him up to his family and all that stuff. That all happened. But I've relived that moment many times asking that question, what could have gone differently had I walked, had instead of walking on the other side of the road, I went to him. Second story took place early 2000s. Uh, Brittany and I had, uh, we'd taken our, our, our one son, two sons, moved down to Oxnard, California. Uh, we were, I think we were pregnant on, on our way. Mackenzie was on her way. And we were at this point where it was like, okay, like we need to find ways to distract these two rambunctious little boys. And so we got to a playground that was outside of this Starbucks. It was really busy. There's kids all over the place. And I remember when we first walked in, there was this older gentleman sitting off by himself, kind of staring off into space. And again, older gentleman wearing kind of like his Sunday best. It was clearly worn and tattered in the corners. But what stood out about him was the expression on his face. It's just utter sorrow. I mean, there was something had happened. He was brokenhearted. He was lonely. And I, and I didn't know, I, I still don't know what all of his story was. Maybe, maybe a family member that was supposed to meet him that never did. And he, sat, he was sitting there in his loneliness. I remember kind of playing with the boys and at one point in time took my eyes off Duncan, which was always dangerous. And I look over and I catch just in time to watch him plop himself down on this old man's lap. And I'm like, whoa, hey, right? Make my way over, sit down beside the old man and start to hear his story. And it was, it was a powerful moment like of just interacting and, 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 and allowing kind of that relational dynamic to kind of to play itself out. But the bigger thing was to watch the expression in this old gentleman's face. Sorrow, pain, haggardness melted away with my son's presence on his lap laughing and giggling, just pouring joy directly into this human and watching his spirit lift, watching my son, instead of walking on the other side of the road, go to the need, even at like two, two and a half. So much power there. There's a unique power in physical contact. We, we know this. We know that we're hardwired for it. Um, but they say that we need like eight to 10 meaningful moments of contact every single day. It releases like oxytocin in our mind or something, our body. And it, it's how we experience pleasure. And it, it actually helps us increase in joy. Studies have shown that premature infants that are born, that, that are born before their time will gain weight faster, 40% more weight if they're held. There is something about physical contact. We need it for life. And, and literally, 
When it's not there, the opposite happens, right? I, I know men and women's stories who have literally been, their mental development, their emotional development has been stunted because of a lack of human contact. I've often wondered if this wasn't the reason for all of the relational fallout from COVID. I mean, we stopped making contact with people. We stopped hugging, we stopped handshaking, we stopped standing close to each other. In fact, we even began putting plastic shields between us, distance, the opposite of contact. Even our immune systems got discombobulated through the whole process. Our bodies are stronger when we're closer together. Now, to be clear, we're talking about wanted contact, okay? Now, I'm not actually a very big hugger. This is an area that I have grown in over my years. And this is certainly not permission to start greeting the cute guy or gal in the foyer with a holy kiss. Um, but being in close proximity makes us more powerful as a people, as a family, as God's children. And the problem is, is that we live in a world that has addicted us to false intimacy via like screens and easy digital communication and a me culture that's just rampant. And those of us who live in the burbs, like we have to wrestle with our tendency to like hide behind our garages or behind our fences and our busy schedules. We know we need to be closer to people. Even all the introverts in the room know that. But it just seems like so much work. Jesus responds to an expert in the law. Expert in the law. Think like the cross between a theologian and a lawyer who's asking this question. How do I inherit eternal life? Or like last week, how do I get through the narrow door, Jesus? And to be clear, this was a test. This lawyer, as a Jewish religious leader, would have assumed that he was saved. He was testing Jesus trying to catch him in his words. But Jesus, with a little bit more of that judo that he does, and suddenly the lawyer is actually giving Jesus a Jesus answer, right? Love God with all that you are, every part of you, and love your neighbor how you would want to be loved. This was the summary of hundreds of commands from Torah. And the lawyer, he gets a little squirmy because he doesn't really want to be seen as agreeing with Jesus, the, that renegade rabbi. So in order to justify himself, he responds with a follow-up question. Yeah, but, but, but what do you mean by neighbor? And Jesus, as he often does, replies with a story. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. There's actually been some speculation that Jesus was recounting uh, a current event and using a current event as a parable because the situation is so like normal. It would have been very much a normal life experience for all of those that were listening. He was describing a very well-known road that connected two major cities and that had a reputation for violence and theft. Everybody there would have been familiar. I've actually been to this portion of the road between, or to a portion of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's both desolate and very dangerous because, simply because it's a desert, right? I mean, it's about 17 miles eight hours on foot, mostly downhill from Jerusalem 
to Jericho through very treacherous terrain. It's known for robberies. Even to this day, it's still known for, as dangerous. And the listeners, all standing around Jesus, would have been nodding like, yep, I know where you're going with this. I understand. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, again, there would have been a familiarity to this story. Priests and Levites who were living in Jericho uh, would have had to have made this trek up to Jerusalem, like for month on month off service at the temple or for special festivals. And it would have required a lot of travel on this very road. Now, if they were leaving from Jericho and going to Jerusalem, they would have likely have been concerned about not becoming unclean. I mean, if they touched blood or a dead body, it would have made them uh, in, unable to do their service at the temple. But if they were coming from Jerusalem and heading to Jer Jericho, they would have worked their long shift and they would have been tired and frankly, very ready to see their family. They may have even had the offerings that was a part of their payment with them and there might have been concern about theft or about becoming untouchable by their own family or even just being slowed, right? Because these are all the legitimate concerns you expect for those that are heading home from work. Man, you just want to get home. Most of the listeners, they would have stood around. They would have been nodding. Yep, I get that. I understand where this is going. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now, I probably don't need to go over the entire backstory here, but, but when Jesus said these three words, but a Samaritan, there was likely people there who cursed under their breath. In fact, there may have even been somebody who spit as he said the word Samaritan. I mean, these two groups hated each other. The rivalry between them was legendary, okay? They viewed each other as heretics and traitors, and Jews would go miles out of their way just to avoid stepping on Samaritan soil. I'm reminded of a time when we were living in Scotland. We'd only been there for like a few months, and I was, we were at this event, and I introduced myself to a guy. I said, hi, yeah, my name's Tim McDonald. And the guy, was, he kind of hesitated for a second, and then he responded, and he said, I'm James Campbell, but I'm forgiven. How'd you guys think of that? Was that okay? Was my accent okay? Yeah, I had a little bit of practice. So I wasn't sure why he was hesitating at first and even why he even said that at first, but he later explained to me the, the story of Glencoe, of the Glencoe betrayal and massacre in 1692, okay? 1692. And I've been on tours since then that have highlighted this moment. There's literally, there's places around Scotland where there's little signs that say, no hawkers or Campbells served. Okay, but they literally, there's tour guides that won't go into Campbell castles because of this massacre and betrayal. Hundreds of years later, and there is still animosity and all the Ducks fans and Beavers fans nod in agreement. All that to say, all, all of the Jewish listeners at that point would have been expecting the Samaritans next move to be taking this man's life. But instead, it says this, the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. These next lines would have been shocking to the listeners around Jesus, even his own disciples. Never would they consider the possibility that the Samaritan could be the hero of the story. Never would they consider the possibility that there could be good, compassion, or generosity given by their enemies. But Jesus loves messing with our preconceptions, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He just loves messing with them. One of the things that makes this parable so unique is that it goes into so much detail. Whereas most of Jesus' parables, they can be very general, very open. Jesus takes pains to describe everything that the Samaritan does. And all these words are here for a reason. First, the Samaritan, it's, it's as he traveled. The specific word in the Greek, it communicates happenstance. This was a part of the Samaritan's normal life. Okay? The Samaritan wasn't on a missions trip. He was simply on his way to work. Second, he saw him and took pity. Now, this is the key difference between the religious leaders and the Samaritan. I mean, they all saw him, but only the Samaritan really saw him. And he was moved with compassion. We see this kind of compassion in the life of Jesus, don't we? Now, Pity's kind of a, a, a bad translation there because of its negative nuances today. But the idea that's being communicated is that of heartfelt compassion. It's that shift that takes place inside of us as we move from seeing something that we see as sad to allowing our empathy to drive us towards action. We've got to do something about it. And so the Samaritan does. In fact, actually, there are six actions that flow out of this Samaritan's compassion. First, he went to him. He crossed the road to the other side, him and the chicken. They went across the road to the other side. I know, I know. Unconcerned by cultural boundaries, getting his hands dirty, or what it might cost him, he moved towards the need. Number two, he bandaged his wounds. Now, to be clear, this would have involved touching his blood, getting dirty. Like this would have involved getting up close and personal with an enemy slash stranger. Third, he poured oil and wine. And these things would have been used for cleaning and bringing comfort. And, and it would have been like using his own supplies for a stranger. Fourth, he put the man on his own donkey. The emphasis on the text is his donkey, that, insinuating the fact that like the donkey that was there to make his life easier was now making this Jewish person's life easier. Fifth, he brought him to an inn. And the fact that the text goes out of its way to mention that there was an innkeeper, it means that this was a nicer accommodation. He didn't like, he didn't go cheapskate here. He literally took him to a place that cost him something. And then sixth, he took out two days wages and gave it to the innkeeper and said, and said, hey, if you need anything more, I will reimburse you for whatever you spend above and beyond. Now, 
This innkeeper was likely Jewish himself. So again, the Samaritan is crossing these social boundaries and giving an incredible, generous buffer to care for this stranger and his needs. The point of the parable's detail is to draw attention to the radical, generous love that this Samaritan shows his enemy. Repeatedly, he goes above and beyond to care for a stranger And this is what it means, says Jesus, to love your neighbor. That person right there on the way, regardless of ethnicity, politics, or identity, who is in need. Caring for them compassionately, generously, extravagantly, just like God cares for us. And that's the thing, right? Because Jesus, he's, he's tying these ideas together. He wants his listeners to understand that loving our neighbor isn't a separate idea from loving God. And this is why he's linking them together. N.T. scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach puts it this way. To love God means to show mercy to those in need. An authentic life is found in serving God and caring for others. This is a central tenet of discipleship. Here, human beings fulfill their created role to love God and to be a neighbor to others by meeting their needs. Neighbors are not determined by race, creed, or gender. Neighbors consist of anyone in need made in the image of God. Isn't that beautiful? Dr. Bach is saying that these these aren't two separate ideas. They're one. Our expression for love, our 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 love that is driven to a point that's all in everything that we've got towards God, that love, it's tied to our expression of loving those around us, our neighbor, those in need. So Jesus carries on and he asks this question and the Jewish lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He simply identifies and says, yeah, It's that one that showed mercy, the one that showed compassion. And Jesus explains later on that that love, it's it's not just an emotion reserved for friends. It's an action that's compelled by necessity. I mean, in our day, for us, it can be it can be difficult for us to love those that we know. How much more those we don't? It can be difficult for us to love those we like. How much more those we don't? It can be difficult to love those who love us. How much more those who hate us? But this, again, is the nature of gospel love modeled in the person of Jesus. Jesus forgives the sins of those that are literally nailing him to a tree. Jesus, and yet while, while we were still sinners, while we're, we were in rebellion, haters of God, he died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might experience, might become the righteousness of God. This is the nature of God's love. I want to be clear though, this isn't like an excuse to stay in an abusive situation or a relationship. It's a call to return love for hate, to return mercy for cruelty, to return kindness 
for anger. But like all of Jesus's teachings, there are so many layers here. And, and one of the layers that I want to poke at just a little bit more in our, in our time together this morning is uh, it can be found kind of in this next parable. So I'm going I'm to keep reading. Verse 38 says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on the way, they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Sounds a little like my kids. Sorry, guys. Not, not you guys, not you two, the other two that aren't here. <laughs> Tell her to help me. You can hear it, right? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, Jesus, he carries on his journey towards Jerusalem, and after his little story with the lawyer, he finds himself staying in the friend, in home of friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, this family, and there's so many beautiful things that we could say about Jesus and his nature of ministry with families. It's just incredible. Or how Jesus does this incredible work and job of like literally lifting up women in a time that women were pushed down. It's just amazing stuff. But the short version that I want to talk about is this idea that Mary took a position at the feet of Jesus that was reserved for disciples. Mary was there to learn. And Martha, Martha took a position elsewhere, distracted, preparing, and likely making room for all of her unexpected guests. Again, it's very understandable. Martha had a lot to do. Culturally, Mary was breaking down all sorts of boundaries that had been in place for generations, but practically, she was also leaving her sister to do all the work. So how do we read this? Well, first, I want to be clear about what this isn't. This, this isn't about degrading the value of hard work or hospitality. The scriptures and Jesus are very clear about both of those things. They are central to spiritual maturity and family life. And it's also not about using spiritual things to get out of doing hard work or hospitality, right? I mean, Jesus literally just talked about that with the Good Samaritan. No, this is about choosing the one thing. The most important thing, the most needed, the most everything comes down to, it is all about thing. Sound familiar? Didn't we just read something about that somewhere? How did that verse go again? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with, with all of your strength, all that you are. Every single part of you focus on one thing, the love for God. Martha was distracted. She was worried. She was upset about so many things. And Jesus, he isn't scolding her. No, he's inviting her. He's inviting her to choose the one thing, to choose him. And I, I think that's a powerful word for some of us in this room today. We're all so busy so distracted 
And there's some good stuff and there's some bad stuff, but in the end, it's like, it's just a distraction. And Jesus is gently calling us back. Okay, but what does this look like? Well, according to Jesus, it looks like sitting at the feet as a disciple, hungry for every word submitted to his authority, our back turned on our old life in communion with our king. It sounds a lot like my sermon from last week. And that's the thing about Jesus. Our relationship with him really isn't that complicated, but it does take your whole life to figure it out. And it will take your whole heart to get there. So what does this have to do with the good Samaritan? Great question. And to answer it, I need a little bit of help, okay? So uh, Jordy did such a fantastic job in the last gathering. I'm gonna call him out. I need, I need three people to help me. David, come on, man. You want to come on out, give me a hand. I need a hand, I need a hand. And uh, Mackenzie, why don't you come on up here? Okay, and actually, since my son Kelton just surprised me this week, why don't you come up too, buddy? Come on up, okay. Okay. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. You should have hit a little better. Yeah, okay. So here, I want to I replace some scenarios here for just a second, okay? Okay, so um, Jordy, since you did such a great job the last, would you mind being Jesus for me? Okay, Jor, Jordy's Jesus. Okay, fantastic. Awesome, thank you. Okay, and then um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you be Mary. That seems appropriate, right? Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, my daughter's actually heading off to Bible college this fall, so she's going to go sit at the feet of Jesus. So anyways, come on, come on, come on over here. Okay, yeah, and, and um, why, don't, um, why don't the, well, I only need one of you. So maybe, uh, Kelton, why don't you go sit at the feet of Jesus with, Kel, with Mackenzie? Okay, there you go. Okay, now are you okay with being Martha? Absolutely. Okay, right. What's, I don't, we don't know what Martha was actually doing at this point. Maybe she was like preparing something in the, in a, not in the back room, but you yeah. need to look busy, okay? okay? Look busy and distracted. Can you, okay. can you do that? Yeah, there you go. That's good. He looks busy, distracted. Jesus, you need to look very eloquent. Jesus is looking eloquent and you guys are looking very studious. Fantastic. Okay, great. I want to draw attention to something here. What does this image teach us about proximity? <laughs> Martha's dancing in the kitchen, okay. What, what, what does this teach us about proximity? Oh, don't we see it here? A moment where, where these, where, where Mary's are sitting close at the feet of Jesus and Martha has distanced herself, busy, Okay, parable, good Samaritan. There was a man who was walking along, minding his own be beeswax, and he gets jumped and beat. Mm, 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 mm. Okay, Jesus, okay, on the ground, right? And, and there was a, I need to come be a priest. Okay, there was a priest. He was like, he's like walking by on the other side of the road, right? Walking by, as priests do. And there was a Levite. He was also like walking by. The two bros were hanging out together. Hey guys. Okay. And meanwhile, there was a Samaritan. And where did the Samaritan go? Where did the Samaritan go? To the need. How do you, how do you serve a person who's just been beaten and is on the ground? On your knees. The, the image is so visible. How do you meet with Jesus? On your knees. How do you serve those that are hurt and broken? On your knees. 
This, this proximity, Luke is a master storyteller, pulling together these ideas, these images for us to get our arms around. My friends, draw close to Jesus. Okay, let's thank the crew for the help. Thank you, thank you. Good job. Thank you, appreciate it. Appreciate it. So here's the thing. Luke, he, he sees what's going on. He calls us into his story and he says, look, the place that you need to be is at the feet of Jesus. And sometimes, sometimes that looks like going to where Jesus is, where the hurting are. Think about the stories Jesus is saying, like when you gave a cold cup of water to the least of these, it was like giving water to who? me. Jesus is with the needy. He's with the brokenhearted. He's with the hurting. And he says, come, join me there. And, and in the midst of all of the distractions of our life, man, the, the Levite and the priest, they were just trying to get home, right? I mean, Martha, she's, she's just trying to get it all ready for everybody. They're distracted. So how do we tie this together? How do we pull these two ideas together? I, there's two kind of like tension points that I want to leave us with. The first one is near and far. Any Sesame fans, Sesame Street fans out there, right? Near versus far. The story draws attention to the reality that if we want to be with Jesus, it means that we're going to have to figure out the whole distraction thing. We're going to have to figure out a way to, to set that aside, to get close. Mary and the Samaritan, they drew close to Jesus. Both broke cultural barriers. Both left people's expectations on the sides. Both were generous with their love. Our wholehearted love for God should draw us into his presence. And we join Jesus as he sits with those in need and as we grow in our relationship with him. Here's the question. How is God calling you to draw close to him today? Where's that place in your life? Maybe, maybe it's a need that you've seen or a person has in their life and you're like, God has been calling me to step into that need to draw close to him in that place. Or maybe it's getting up 20 minutes earlier so that you can sit at his feet. Where is God calling you to draw close? The second tension point, though, is this, this tension between interruption versus distraction. The Samaritan was interrupted. Mary was distracted. And there's a big difference. I mean, we, we have got to learn the skill of divine interruption, We've got to learn how to have enough space and, and have our eyes wide open to see those moments when the Spirit is just calling us to step in, to stop, to meet with Jesus in the need of that person right in front of you. We've got to learn how to be holy in our interruptions while at the exact same time going to war against our distractions. And they are many. They fight for our time. They fight for our mental energy. They try to get in front of us and the things that are in front of us. And, and Jesus is calling us like, push back from the distractions so that you can allow yourself to be interrupted. 
I mean, this is why, why Jesus even calls us with a great commandment in the front end. Because we need purpose to do that. He reminds us right off the bat that the most important thing is to love me and love people, love me and love people, love me and love people. And he calls us to keep that in front of us all of the time because it will help us separate distractions from interruptions. The question that comes to mind is how is God calling you right now in this moment to step from your distractions, away from your distractions towards his interruptions? How's God calling you to do that right now? I want to invite you just to go ahead and stand up to your feet. I think we live in a world where like those two ideas have kind of been put in tension with each other. Like, like, man, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. But we know that we need space. The question that comes to my mind is, is how are you allowing God to have the first, the best space in your day so that you can create the room to be interrupted? And that's what I want to pray over you today. Lord, I just pray for my family here because I get this. I am in this. Lord, would you help us? Would you disciple us, Holy Spirit, in the way of stepping away from our distractions to, to consider those things that are in our life right now that we, that frankly, we need to like, we need to tune them down, turn the noise down on those distractions so that we can be interrupted by you. Jesus, would you teach us that? Would you show us that? Convict us, move us, motivate us because we want to be interrupted by you. We love you. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.